You're listening to season one of Ding Dong Darkness Time. If this is your first time joining us, we hope you'll check out all the other episodes of this season, each one delving into the dark side of the arts. If you love it, tell the world. In the meantime, let's take a little trip, shall we? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ding Dong Darkness Time. I'm Allison Dixon, and today I'm talking movies, which means I need to introduce to you a couple of my favorite people, my friends, Joshua and Kelly from the podcast Press Play and Scream, all about the horror movies. I was on an episode of theirs not too long ago, and we talked about the George C. Scottness of cinema with The Exorcist Three and the changeling and you might have also heard one of my uh, recurring co-hosts chris on an episode of theirs not too long ago uh, where they spoke about the legendary session nine as well as is it the house on haunted hill Uh, yes yes, the remake the remake yes um so it was natural that when i had a topic that just seemed to merge the perfect ingredients of morbid movies and miscarriage of justice that I had to bring in Joshua and Kelly to talk about the Twilight Zone movie incident. And so welcome to the show, you guys. Yay. Great to be here. Always happy to uh, talk about miscarriages. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> I was trying to think of M's that would work uh, in a in a triplet because I love that uh, that sort of symmetry. You alliteration ad nauseum. Yes, clearly, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I found out about this um, incident that happened on the set of the Twilight Zone movie that was made in 1983, many years ago, and it's always stuck in my brain. It's one of those really haunting uh, catastrophes that you sometimes hear about happening on a movie set. And in this case, it involved a helicopter crash that killed not only the star of the film, but two very young children that he was in the scene with. And what resulted from that was a lot of litigation, some criminal trials, civil trials, and ultimately the, well, not quite the ruination of careers as as we might have hoped, and, and we'll get back to that later, but it definitely changed the movie industry in a lot of ways. It's considered a very much a pivotal moment uh, for the movie industry. Of course, it didn't eliminate all catastrophes for movie sets, as we know anybody who Googles Alec Baldwin anytime soon will learn that even now horrible things still happen due to various oversights and negligence on the sets of movies. And we may talk about that at some point, but this one I think deserves some special attention because wow, there are some players involved, but we're going to keep from getting too overly long here and talk about first the twilight zone. Uh, who here raise, raise your hands. Us three who watched the twilight zone. Well, my hand is, is up. You can't see it, but no, uh, <laughs> uh, we're not doing video this time. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the twilight zone just as an institution and as a storytelling style as a kid really transformed me. It had so much to do with how I approached stories going forward in terms of, you know, these very overblown morality plays with the fantastic twist ending. I love that stuff. I love these anthological sort of episodic things like that and uh, Tales from the Crypt, The Outer Limits, all of that sort of thing. But of course, 
especially the Twilight Zone, because it sort of feels like it started it all. Absolutely. As an institution, like, I adore it, but I was saying this to Cal yesterday when we were uh, kind of talking about this movie, that to me, the Twilight Zone is also, uh, can be very easily compared to something like the X-Files or Star Trek, where when you're dealing with an era of a studio having to put 22 episodes or more of something on television every year, you're going to have some really great hits and the hits are fantastic. You're going to have some misses and you're going to have some that are kind of forgettable. So even though I'm very comfortable saying, oh, I love Twilight Zone. I love the X-Files, huge fan of Star Trek. When rewatching them, let's be honest, most of us only watch about a third of them. And those are the ones that we really, really, really enjoy. We just sort of pretend the rest don't exist, you know? I agree with you and also feel that the era of the 21, 22 episode TV series seems to be mostly on the decline. And thank God, because I do absolutely feel like there was so much filler in order to make that quota where when they started shrinking it down to something between eight and 13 episodes, it really started to feel we were getting a little more cohesion, something that felt more cinematic in its storytelling. But I I agree with you. I think with the Twilight Zone and and an anthology style series as this was, there was a lot of room for, oh, this is a huge, awesome hit. And uh, this one's kind of forgettable. When I think back about my watching the Twilight Zone and shows like it, Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, as you mentioned, Outer Limits, um, and even Black Mirror, as a more recent example, there are pinnacle episodes that just stick in the brain. But you don't always remember the the rest of them. The Twilight Zone has a long history. It ran from uh, 1959 to 1964 in its original format. It's had some reboots as recently as uh, how long ago was that, uh, Joshua? We were just talking about that with Jordan Peele's uh, remake. That was it just a few years ago. Yeah, I think it was about four years ago. I think it was 2018, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I haven't watched it. I've been meaning to. It's just one of those that. It just can't seem to catch up on my my shows. Just saw like a very long queue <laughs> of shows. What about you, Kelly? Did you did you watch much anthology TV? Well, I I watched all of the X Files, but that sort of goes back and forth between like a monster of the week type format and like a more cohesive, like, you know, mythology. Um yes. I did watch the new Twilight Zone and there was a second season. Um, sometime during this pandemic, but that doesn't really narrow it down because at this point I'm in Jeremy Baramy. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of, you know, at some point over the past few years, there was a second season. Um, I have seen some Twilight Zone episodes. The only one I really remember, and it's it's the weirdest thing. If I'm back when I had cable, if I was flipping channels and an episode was on, it was always time enough at last. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, if you are an actively literate person, as I am, the most terrifying episode ever. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen that episode probably five or six times. Yeah. That episode, with the, given a show with such a, a rich and long history, it, that episode, and we'll talk about it, the film version of it, the t- Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite episodes is The Invaders. Uh, starring Agnes Moorhead, who was on Bewitched, I think was her most famous role. She's actually 
uh, buried in a cemetery here in Dayton, Ohio, where, oh. where I live. Yay. Claim to fame. <laughs> and one thing that I learned actually doing some of my very brief research, just on the history of the twilight zone was how many authors that we, and directors that we have heard about ad nauseum today, got their start writing and directing for the twilight zone. And, and of course, many actors as well. The Invaders was written by Richard Matheson, um, yeah. and he's actually wrote a lot for The Twilight Zone, or a lot of episodes were adapted from his short stories. Uh, in fact, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet was a Richard Matheson short story um, originally. And I, and that brings back memories of me watching uh, my anthology shows growing up. Uh, I mentioned Tales from the Dark Side. There was another one called Monsters that was even lower budget. Uh, than Tales from the Dark Side. And it uh, had a few Stephen King short stories on it. And I recognized them off the bat because at that point when I was obsessed with these shows, I was reading Stephen King pretty much exclusively um, between the ages of 11 and 16. Um, yeah. So it was really cool to sometimes see a short story recognized being adapted on one of these shows. And it was a great way to get um, director's new experience as well. You're just making this really great short episode of TV. And it inspired me a lot as a writer. I started out writing short stories and I still absolutely love uh, writing them and reading them. Uh, it's amazing the arc and the profound thought you can put into such a tiny space, which is one thing I really love about this form of television. And why I loved Black Mirror so much, although I'm a little bit behind on that as well, which is kind of a bummer. But, and I like how you mentioned too, uh, Joshua, about the moral buried in all of these stories. They all seem to have some sort of poetic irony or poetic justice. And the really good ones have it buried deep enough so it doesn't feel like that. The ones that, don't do such a good job of it. It does feel a bit like watching an after-school special or, or something along those lines. Like you're trying to tell me a lesson, aren't you? Well, I was just going to say. I mean, what we know now of of Rod Serling at the Twilight mm-hmm. Zone was that there were so many cultural stories that he felt needed to be told and issues that needed to be explored at that yes. time. And there was absolutely no way to do that uh, in any serious context because the network simply would not have it. You dress it up in a rubber monster suit, on the other hand, you can be as blatant as you want to be. And that, again, goes back to Star Trek, goes back to you know a lot of these shows where all you have to do is paint it with a light brush stroke and call it sci-fi, and you can get away with things that otherwise you couldn't in a million years. And the same is true for horror. And that's uh, I think, and yes, I, uh, most of the time, it's not subtle. We we know the lessons that they're teaching to us, but mm-hmm. the way that they're presented, and I'm sure we'll go into this more with the first segment, because that's kind of the, the, the seminal segment that we're going to be talking about. But, you know, you have these characters, uh, like the Vic Morrow character, and you have plenty of them in the original series as well, where you know from the beginning that you're not supposed to share their point of view. Right. That you are being shown to a certain degree a caricaturization of a social ill or evil. But what it doesn't do generally, and what it didn't even do back then, 
was to create this sort of straw man that was easy to kick around. Even if you know you're not supposed to agree with this person, still allowed to a certain degree to empathize or sympathize with them so that you can go on that journey with them for the rest of the episode, as opposed to just sort of taking for granted, oh, this guy is an evil piece of shit. So we're happy to watch bad stuff happen to him. Now it's a question of, but why is he evil? Yes. Why is that evil? You know, look around. It's all around you in real life. There's nothing sci-fi about it. So, you know, that was, uh, even for them, for something to be that broad and that subtle at the same time was really fascinating. I'm ahead of its time as well. Oh, I I actually felt that way watching these segments of the Twilight Zone movie, in fact. Um, And given some of them paint with a very broad brush or some of them are just so on the nose with what they're trying to explore. But at the same time, when you're thinking about when these were being made, and I don't think a lot of these issues were being very actively explored. The activists at the time railing against talking about things that we openly discuss now um, or try to improve upon, you know, the things that, you know, where we're talking about injustices and racism. And as we'll talk about again with um, the episode, the Equality of Mercy, the John Landis, Vic Morrow episode of the Twilight Zone movie, for instance, deals very heavily with racism and sort of the the poetic justice of taking your average uh, racist, you know, white guy and putting him through the ringer as this oppressed uh, minority that he had earlier been throwing under the bus, right? So I think it was based on an episode of the show. I think it was a partial remake of an earlier episode, if I'm not mistaken. So this was trying to be tackled many years ago too. So I, yeah, I got to hand it to Rod Serling. I actually, I didn't know a lot about him until I started doing a bit of this deep dive. I would like to do a full season of this show on him and the twilight zone just to do an even deeper dive on him because I, I found him fascinating and sort of a hero and a lot of, in that sense of like, wow, this dude was really trying to tell some truths in a very creative way, which is something that I've, you know, tried to do in some ways with my work and how anybody who writes stories for, for a living or, or as a hobby wants to be able to do, that's what we do with fiction. Right. And as Stephen King so beautifully put it, that it's the truth wrapped in a lie. Um, is what fiction is. And I've always loved that quote. And I feel like the Twilight Zone did that to an exemplary level. I will say the movie that was interesting because that came along in 1983 was when it was released. It was being made in 19, was it 1982, I believe? Uh, So yeah, it was, it was post Blues Brothers um, for Landis, I know. Yeah. And Landis at that time, he was, he was hot shit on the scene. I mean, he made animal house, he made the blues brothers. And then you throw in these other directors that were either already very established or up and coming. We have, of course, Steven Spielberg, probably the biggest superstar of them all directing a segment, this movie. And then we have Joe Dante, who I think we most famously know from gremlins, and then uh, George Miller of Mad Max fame yes. uh, directing Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So we have two superstars, Landis and Spielberg, with two up-and-comers. 
or lesser knowns at that time. And they get together. And I think Spielberg, it was Spielberg and Landis co-produced the whole thing. Then um, they were going to make four episodes. And of course, they were kind of bookended, right, by Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks doing these little kind of like like a lead in. And then there were it was kind of bookended at the end with uh, Aykroyd as well. So it was like a it made it into a, like a cohesive little package, right, to be put into cinema. And it was kind of a, a creative way. I think Tales from the Crypt did a similar thing in the 90s. I think they did a there was like an anthology movie. It's kind of a weird little package, right? You're you're going to see a movie and it's three or four different things, but it all feels kind of related in some way. Uh, Quentin Tarantino and uh, Robert Rodriguez did it with Grindhouse as well. I think that's probably the most recent that I can think um, of. The thing is about that, though, first of all, with Tarantino and Rodriguez, they also, uh, you know, before Grindhouse, uh, long before, they did the anthology movie Four Rooms. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, thank God for bringing that up. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. them did a segment and there were two other directors as well who contributed. But the thing with something like uh, this movie specifically, but also the Tales from the Crypt show, which was launched uh, a handful of years after that, was that you've got, as you said, these directors, you've got Spielberg, you've got Dante, you've got Miller, you've got Landis, certainly. And you've got others. You've got Robert Zemeckis as well, and also oh. Richard Donner, who all yes. of them are of a piece in that they all grew up roughly in a similar generation of being these kids who, and it's even called out in the first scene of uh, Creepshow. You yes. have these directors who were all very clearly the kind of little boys who had like old dog-eared copies of uh, EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Vault. Or also yes. probably Mad Magazine or the National Lampoon Magazine, you know, under their mattresses just a few years before they probably had Playboys under there as well. <laughs> right, you right. Know, we see these sensibilities, not just in this movie, but in really almost every film that they uh, did, certainly around that era. I mean, Spielberg went on to much loftier things and Zemeckis went on to do Forrest Gump. But deep down, you know, these are still kind of this same giggling group of uh, smutty little boys who basically just sort of like <laughs> love this marriage are in comedy and whimsy and are able to, you know, reimagine them and put them together in ways that still really delighted and thrilled audiences. And I love that. And then they went on to, yeah, collectively mostly produce the Tales from the Crypt uh, TV show. And we saw how fantastic that was, but it's the same energy. And that's why... You know, you can take, and we did this on, the, on our show recently, you can take uh, a year where these two films, uh, American Werewolf and also The Howling came out. Mm. And very different films and to a certain degree, different directors. But by God, that same sensibility is still just a, a mile long streak between both of those flicks. So it's delightful to see it all to a certain degree come together here, even though an anthology is by definition, as we've said, you know, it's hit or miss. I mean... If one were to take any five random episodes of the original Twilight Zone, bundle them together and make them into a movie, what can I say? Again, I love the Twilight Zone and I would probably love two fifths of that film. But you know, <laughs> right, right. And you had mentioned that uh, the Vic Morrow segment, The Quality of Mercy, uh, is partially based on an original Twilight Zone episode, probably as a lot of them are. And I don't know which episode that would be, but to me, it reminded me of the 1963 episode called He's Alive. 
Mm. by Sterling himself and Dennis Hopper, who's just a teenager back then. And wow. Fascinating to watch people like him uh, and Robert Redford get their start on that show. But Hopper plays this young inner city neo-Nazi. And this is 1963. Yeah. Racist screeds are, you know, very similar to the ones that we hear from Morrow at the beginning. But just like that, I mean, again, is he a hateful little bugger of a character? Of course he is. Yeah. Even though we agree with nothing he is saying, you've only got to look in the eyes and see the performance. And this is the brilliance of Hopper and then Morrow later to know that the frustration and the anger and the fear that these characters are, are experiencing, that's real. And we get to watch, as I said, that, uh, that journey and that arc. And of course, you know, with the neo-Nazi thing, I mean, you can watch it today and you'd be sure that you're watching uh, the modern news because of course, the more things change, you know, the more they stay the same. <laughs> you're, you're so correct. Uh, and I love that you brought up Dennis Hopper um, being in the episode and also that you brought up, I know Richard Donner, who, whom you mentioned a minute ago, uh, because I think he was also, he's the one that directed Nightmare at 20,000 Feet for TV. So, and then of course he goes on to make Lethal Weapons, Superman. I mean, you know. The, the Omen. Also the Omen. Absolutely. Scrooge, which is the really thrilling oh. thing in terms of like this same kind of, yeah, you can go lofty and do the man from Krypton. But at the end of the day, if you can, you know, tell something funny and scary and sleazy and worms coming out of eye sockets. God. Cracking jokes. You know, you're going to do that. And people they, don't It is. And I love how you described them. They they are, they are a gaggle of, of raunchy little boys that were steeped in pulp growing up. And you can see that across the board. I, and I sympathize with that. And I, I mesh with it because I also love the pulp and I also love, you know, a lot of that stuff. And of course, coming up in the eighties and to a a certain extent, the nineties, I mean, that's largely what there was. And that was where a lot of our entertainment was coming from. So it's, it's really cool to see where they got their beginnings and what they came from and what they were doing. And of course, that's how we ended up with Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Of course, this yeah. isn't a George Lucas show, but part of that same club. Yeah, um, very much so part of that same, part of that same club. Definitely. We get to, of course, the Twilight Zone movie and a friend of mine on Twitter, Aaron Bates, brought up a good point about how Carol Serling, I think it was Rod Serling's uh, widow, that she had closely guarded the estate for a very long time and and really wanted to make sure that it was treated with respect. And so when when this movie was put together and she saw the names, uh, Spielberg, Landis, all that, she thought, oh, her husband's legacy is going to be respected and it's going to be treated very well. I can't help but feel in retrospect, which, you know, yeah. nothing but, and oh my God, I can't even imagine um, how she must have felt knowing what happened on the set of this movie. But I want to start again, um, when we talk about this movie, I want to start in reverse. We're not going to talk about equality and mercy first, even though it is the first segment, we're going to roll this back and do it in reverse because I, not only do I feel like, of course, uh, that it's saving the weightier topic for last, but also I think we're starting with the better movies first, but that's my opinion. Um, and I do feel that that's kind of intentional. Um, and I'll circle back to that, uh, later as well, but let's start 
with Nightmare at 20,000 feet. In many ways, I feel that this is probably the most famous of the Twilight Zone TV episodes. Yeah, Yeah. if you mention the guy on the airplane looking out and seeing a monster on the wing of the plane, I think a lot of people, it's just such a pop culture reference now. It was even lampooned on SNL many years back. Well, Um, also very famously did that on Treehouse of Horror, where a very early episode of that where Bart is on his way to school in the school bus and Otto's driving (laughs) and looks out and they do the the episode and they do it perfectly. Or even something like uh, the Ace Ventura sequel where they're on the plane and, of course, Jim Carrey can't help himself. There's something on the wing. Some yeah. thing. I mean, it's just so easy to call back. It's just, and it can be used a zillion different ways, and it has been. So, you know. Yeah, and so it, you already have this huge cultural touchstone, but then you add the zany energy of George Miller to that mix as director of the cinematic version and it is it it it's infused in its dna with anxiety i think i felt that from the get-go i am i am a lightly anxious flyer i tend to have my worst moment before the plane leaves the ground but once i'm up there i just i just let it go and hand it over to god or whatever and just say if whatever happens happens and i just get over it I don't have panic attacks in mid-flight, thankfully. But here, with John Lithgow's performance, I felt like I could have a panic attack on an airplane. I don't know about you guys. That was really well done, I will say. Although I do feel it was a little over the top. But again, George Miller. I mean, if if it's not over the top, you're kind of not doing it properly, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, How did you feel about it, Kelly? I I am... um... I did not make it this far into the movie uh, today, but um, it's it's funny because I've I've been on an airplane multiple times. Now, as an adult, I am an anxious flyer, and I do not sit in a window seat. Yeah, I am aisle only, and I would not look out that window for any amount of money. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's no monster by the plane, but if there is, I'm not going to know about it. You know, that's probably the way to go. Yeah. (laughs) I don't understand. Like after the flight attendant closed the window shade and put the blanket on him and gave him some sedatives, that should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. It seems like they didn't take. I feel like once you know, there's something going on, it's like every horror movie where you have somebody hiding under the covers and you know, something's coming, but you don't know exactly when it'll get you, but you, you have to like an idiot peel back the covers and look. And then of course the thing is right there. Yes. So that's, that's what it is. So don't, don't look in the first place. That's, that's kind of my motto. <laughs> if you don't look, then there's nothing there. That is exactly. absolutely true. Absolutely. Let it be a surprise. That's Which is why you scream at everybody going up the stairs in a scary movie. Like, stop, yes. just don't explore <laughs> the weird sound. Just stay where you are. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> Don't spoil the surprise of your own death. That's all I'm saying. Make the killer come to you. Make yeah. them work for it. <laughs> Whereas I'm going right up those stairs. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the thing about this uh, this segment, and of course, you know, you got to love William Shatner doing the original because how can you not? But, oh, of course. You know, it's such a worthy successor in his own way without doing any kind of an impression 
of the original performance is, of course, Lithgow. Here's a guy who his entire career has never really concerned himself with how cool do I look on screen. This guy is so fucking fearless. He is so willing to look like any kind of asshole that you need him to do. Yes. Whether oh. he's a pompous prick on the crown as uh, Churchill, or if he's, you know, being a completely clueless nutbag fish out of water on Third Rock in the Sun, or something <laughs> like or World According to Garp, where he plays a trans football player long before, you know. that. Or he was stuff. just a seething, like, billionaire bad guy in Cliffhanger with yeah. Sly Stallone. <laughs> I mean, he is so unafraid. He is ridiculous. And so to watch him commit so fully and just come so completely unhinged on screen, it's like if the Morrow thing had not happened in the first segment, you know, this would be as it deserved to be the centerpiece of this entire film, you know? I I would agree with you here um, and love the whole aspect of we're pointing out these things, but people think we're crazy. And I feel like as a concept, as an abstract on its own, whether no matter where you are, that remains a relevant thing in so many ways. It just, you can extrapolate that into almost any situation when we're talking about world events, when we're talking about climate change, when we're talking about COVID, we're talking about, and here it is actually happening. We're pointing to the evidence. We're showing the damage on the wing of the plane. And here he is in a straitjacket at the end. It's just, that's such a metaphor, right? Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, because the original episode, you know, most of the episodes, but you can definitely point to this one more than mm-hmm. one, is because as you said, it encapsulates fear in a way that if you come right down to it, every segment of this movie uh, encapsulates a certain emotion very, very brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one in particular, because with the original, you've got all of this cultural horror going on at once. You've got a legion of people who just came out of uh, either World War II or Korea dealing with post-traumatic stress during an era when that's not really even a term that's thrown around. And it's basically just, <laughs> suck it up, be a man. And so they're, they're dying inside. They're cracking like eggs. And on top of that, you've got now the Cold War, threat of nuclear annihilation. And you've got uh, you know, not just the commies, but also, oh, you know, people are starting to talk about UFOs. So all of this with this simple image of a guy looking out the window of a plane, and is he seeing this ridiculous thing on the wing, tearing it apart, or is he cracking up? Well, right. more Americans than we probably like to think of were asking themselves very, very similar questions and being treated the same way. So you update that then to the sort of self-aware, navel-gazing, existential horror of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And it works, oddly enough. It still works uh, perfect. Agreed. Now, here's where we go into a slightly different, let me back that up, a similar energy, but a very different setting with uh, Joe Dante's It's a Good Life. That is second segment we're talking about, but it is the third segment in the film as it airs. Now, we have a lovely... Kathleen Quinlan looking, I mean, my God, she looks absolutely mm-hmm. stunning. Does she not? <laughs> you are not like, wrong. Yeah. That was the first thing I noticed. Like, Jesus, I forgot that she's pretty hot. Um, I hadn't seen her in a few years, but she encounters this strange little boy at a diner or whatnot. She's traveling across the country for a, a new job. And she encounters this boy being harassed by someone in a bar 
and she, you know, defends him as she's because she wants to use the phone or ask for directions or something like that. And as she's leaving the place, she accidentally backs into him with her car and screws up his bike. And he's like, well, just take me home. He's like a nine-year-old kid, maybe 10. He's not very old, but he's, you know, he just seems like this unassuming little boy. And he takes her home to meet his family. And then it just gets downright acid trips, psychotic with the energy levels and the things that are happening with this family at this house. These people are clearly unhinged in some way that we don't know why quite yet. They're very welcoming. They're very friendly. They're very accommodating, but almost to the point of we're doing this because if we don't, we're going to get killed or something. They're terrified. I think that's really what underlies all of it, right? This feeling of terror that is underlining most of their emotions, but it's almost like to this point of like, I don't know, feeling almost frantic. Uh, it immediately again gives you anxiety, and that's what this show does, right? You're you're looking for that hook point for your anxiety to like latch onto, and from that point, you're just waiting to see how it comes out. Sometimes, but sometimes not, and we're going to get to that right after this. Obviously, that's with the that's kids, a very good point. <laughs> I mean, not all of the we we like to forget this, but not all of the Twilight Zone episodes were about frightening the audience. The ones we remember were because that's those, true. The ones that stood out, and certainly, by the way, this is based on, if you ask any Twilight Zone fan, oh, name the top five best episodes, that horrifying, omnipotent child uh, episode who's holding his family to a certain degree, the whole town hostage, that's going to make that list. And so obviously it makes it into this film as well. But, you know, again, you've got something like uh, the Kick the Can segment that's not about frightening us really even slightly and no that's to a certain degree why i don't like that segment even though i i can't say it's bad and i can't say it's not twilight zone it certainly is but me i'm, I'm here for the scares and so it, this certainly you know there's nothing more horrifying and, and even more so in the original episode i think than the looks on the faces of these adults who are being terrorized by a child with theoretically limitless power and with all the sensibilities of a child and children really suck and have very little morality. <laughs> so, I mean, what's more horrifying than putting that, uh, putting that power in and just seeing the anguish and the exhaustion and the frayed nerves just written on the faces of the people that he's terrorizing. I love it. It's a little bit village of the damned too. Yes. Mm. Like when you have these, um, you know, like when they're still very little and they don't have any sort of reason, there's a part in um, the movie where one of the moms accidentally gives her baby a bottle of milk that's a little too hot and then is punished by having to put her hand in boiling water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it is it's like it's it's scary anyway that you have someone with this power to punish you for whatever reason they want. But when the person that can do it is a kid and doesn't really have empathy yet, necessarily, it's, you know, it's terrifying. But um, I remember one of the jobs I had before the job I have now, we had a manager that was unreasonable. And anytime he was in a mood, the joke around the office would be like, everybody be careful or he's going to send you to the cornfield. Oh, (laughs) eggshells, eggshells, right? You're just walking on them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that right there is, I think that's the anxiety hook. That's the, the narrative hook that like I need to do and say everything the right way so that I don't piss this person off because 
Yeah. And we, we have all had that encounter. We've all lived with, been raised by, or worked with people like that. Uh, one thing I really loved about this segment though, is this is one of the few times you will ever see and hear Nancy Cartwright at the same time on a, <laughs> on a screen, the whole time I'm hearing her, I'm like, that's Bart Simpson. That's Bart Simpson. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Right. It's Robert Culp, who would, I guess, take basically any role that was offered to him. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So this one definitely had the fingerprint of the guy who made the gremlins on it. When you look at that mutated bunny rabbit that gets pulled out of the hat or the Tasmanian devil thing felt very over the top, dark comedy and scary at the same time. And plus the way the sound was mixed, it felt very harsh. It felt very overwhelming. There were parts of it. I felt like sensory wise, I was being overwhelmed a little bit. And I felt like that was the intention. Like it was there to make me feel overwhelmed. And I thought I could not be in the role that Kathleen Quinlan is playing because she's this very patient and saintly type woman observing this. And then by the end, she's like, I will help you. I will guide you. I will, you know, hang out with you, whatever. It's a really weird kind of ending. But at the same time, I'm thinking, what's going to happen when he grows into a teenager and it gets even worse? Oh my God, I wouldn't want to be any of the girls in that town. But no, no. All I can think, like, there is never going to be a good ending here. Like, (laughs) by the way, too, like, and it's, it's funny that, at the beginning of this segment, I mean, we are feeling for the kid because it looks like he's about to get his ass kicked by a fully grown adult. And right. it's hilarious to me how they flip that on its head by the end of it, where we're terrified of the child. You mentioned the mutated bunny rabbit, because how can you not? That's just such a centerpiece <laughs> of the segment. And you said that feels like the guy who did gremlins. And you're right, it does. And the thing about Dante is that if you watch any creature-focused or special effects-focused thing that he's done in his career. You know, a lot of people, a lot of directors or effects people, their goal is how can I make this look as realistic as possible? And that's a good goal. And you should try to do that to kind of fool the human eye. But with Dante, he takes it a step further in the same way that like Jim Henson did. You don't just see something on screen that's cool or believable. You see something that the creator of that thing puts so much genuine love into and so much of himself into that you could like really just picture him looking at it on set and just feeling so satisfied and fulfilled with himself. I mean, Mm -hmm. just uh, he's so linked to his own creatures and you don't see that so much in modern cinema. I think you don't have those hallmarks where you look at that and think, oh, that's that's Lucas or that's Dante because it's just. It, it shines through in the same way. Now it's just a question of, oh, how good does the CGI look? Did CGI look good? Did it not look good? Why didn't it look good? Very, very good points all around. And I love thinking now of Dante as sort of the horror Jim Henson. I was, I always think of Gremlins as the first horror movie I ever saw, really. Although I, I know I saw, I think Nightmare on Elm Street was technically the first one I remember, but I feel like Gremlins was my true introduction uh, into the genre, even though it wasn't quite billed as that. It just, it played as that, especially in the mind of a kid. And it's a beautiful marriage. And we just, I don't think we see it enough 
anymore. I don't know if it's something that can exist outside the 80s when things were still very scary and we weren't really doing a whole lot to shield kids from scary stuff. And and I don't know. I don't know if gremlins would be made today. I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find myself pondering that very often. I, I just feel like, yeah, that sensibility is all over this segment, this kid, this kid you're supposed to identify with and feel sympathy for, but then there's all this scary shit happening around him and scary shit he's doing. And you're terrified of the kid. To me, this stands is probably my favorite of the four overall because of the emotions it really made me battle with. Um, whereas Nightmare at 20,000 Feet is absolutely playing with a more universal concept of anxiety and, and fear flying and and being believed, right? And I was left just feeling very wowed by it. These two guys came into this project doing their absolute best um, is what it really feels like. like. George Miller and Joe Dante just came into this thing and knocked it out um, because I feel like they kind of felt like they had to. And, and maybe Spielberg and, and Landis, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like we could definitely talk about like the rookies versus the old pros and the differences that that brings sometimes in the, in the quality of the output. I, I think you can definitely make the case that if things had gone better, Joe Landis's segment wouldn't have been John Landis. I'm sorry. Uh, his segment wouldn't have been as awful as it was. It felt very disjointed and um, sort of ended very abruptly. And I mean, of course it did because of what happened that I know we're going to talk about in a minute, but I also think he was sort of just coasting anyway. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like he probably felt like he didn't really have anything to prove. So we sort of had a, a Rocky five thing going on. If, oh yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and yeah, we are going to get into that segment more, but the thing about Landis with that is that, uh, first of all, I don't think he was phoning it in really yet. In any way, I, I think that he was doing his best take on the Twilight Zone that he himself could do. I'm speaking artistically, of course, not in terms of personal responsibility, which he wrote off the rails horribly. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, like, the thing about Landis, too, is that he, although you can tell he enjoyed the Twilight Zone as a show, and again, tells from the crypt, and he's clearly a huge horror guy, if you look at his body of horror work, it's not really issues based. He's not usually like commenting on something, right? Making, you know, a horror thing that's funny at the same time. And he is good at that. But that was like exploring an issue, a societal issue, that doesn't seem like his comfort point. That doesn't really seem like his wheelhouse. But getting back, uh, Alice, to what you were just saying about how you found. 20,000 feet to be more sort of identifiable in terms of scares and sort of more accessible and surprised because you're a mother, aren't you? I am. Yeah. yeah. And I would think that, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the segment with the kid, and I don't remember the names of the segments, by the way, whatsoever, but I would think that the segment of the, with the kid would be far more relatable and far more terrifying to any parent. I'm not a parent, but frankly, like, you know, just the fear of children as a concept, even as something. Oh. I mean, they're terrifying, mysterious little creatures who are <laughs> capable of the weirdest sorts of tantrums or anything or nothing. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I found myself skipping through parts of that segment because those were just too intense. And it wasn't the horror parts with the rabbits and shit like that. It was just, 
again, just, just the the trauma etched on the faces of, of these characters. No. I like, get it. I do. No, no. I mean, I, I feel like it's the 20,000 feet segment is more universal in this. It's, I think everybody could. I still feel like the Jodante segment is my favorite specifically because of how much it terrifies me, but you bring up the, the mother aspect, which I didn't consider, but you're absolutely right because I took it for granted, right? My own experiences with kids and, and whatnot. And uh, admittedly, it's been a while since I've raised a small child. My kids are 19 and 20 as of this recording. So, you know, they're fully grown psychopaths versus tiny psychopaths, which is a different thing altogether. Um, (laughs) But uh, no, they're great. Um, But I absolutely feel like, yeah, anybody who has any experience with kids at all, even on a tangential level, should find this scary. And I do not blame you for fast forwarding it even a little bit because it is unsettling. And I think that's really what I love about it, though. Like, I don't think I really want to watch it again. And that, and I feel that way about a lot of horror and maybe that's something we could even talk about on your show. Like the thing that scared us, a, a horror movie that we loved that we never want to see again. Like that is a whole topic unto itself. The horror movie that we love so much, we never want to ever see it again. Yeah, like um, hereditary. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, actually, yeah, any of his movies, honestly, I kind of feel that way about Midsummer as well, but absolutely just loved this movie at the same time, I felt like crazy. It's zany. It's, I don't know how many people will love it for the same reason that I do. Um, but I do feel like it's a very, very strong entry and it was a tonic. I have to say after getting through kick the can, um, which is the second one, which was made by Steven Spielberg. And and I feel like this one here, I'm just going to, I'm just going to come right out with my summation. It feels like a proto version of hook. That's what this one feels like to me. This like something that explores the complexities of youth and aging. And Spielberg later explored that with this modern day retelling of Peter Pan uh, in the movie hook, but he did, he did it here in this very saccharine and cringy to use the words the kids use today. For me, the highlight of it all was Scatman Crothers. Cause I love him. Uh, and I, cause I love the shining. I love him, but at the same time, it just used all sorts of tropes in a way that I'm just kind of over. And I was happy when it was over. Um, thoughts. <laughs> well, I mean, easily my least favorite segment of the entire thing. But again, like I had to admit to myself the entire time. Well, no, it's it's the Twilight Zone. There were plenty of episodes that were exactly like this. Yeah. The same way. And each one of them left me feeling like I want to be scared. You know, kiss my ass, Stephen. I want you to do a different <laughs> segment instead. But I mean, like, it's interesting that you tied it to Hook. I wouldn't have made that comparison, but you're absolutely right. Um, I think that it's not a Stephen Spielberg uh, flick, but there's definitely a line to be drawn between this and uh, Cocoon, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you had a generation getting older during that specific period that this was clearly speaking to, you know. But, um, I mean, it's not my thing. It's not my thing even a little bit. Was it done well? Yes, if you like that sort of thing. Sure. And again, Crothers is uh, always fantastic to watch, although it's sad that, you know, he should have had much more of a career than he actually did, you know. Yes, yes. 
I very much agree. How did you feel about it, Kelly? No, thank you. Yeah. It's, it's (laughs) just, yeah, I, I want scares. I want, if you can't scare me or make me feel something, you know, make it thought provoking. And it was, it was fine. It was, it was, it was very much like, Okay, it feels like I don't know how Spielberg, how old he was when he made this. Uh, I assume he was in his, he was about my age, probably in his 40s, right? Maybe late 40s. Definitely middle aged. So it feels like somebody who's asking themselves in a very ham fisted way if I could go back to being a child again, would I? And then it has a very old person or adult's answer to that question, which is, well, probably not. which is kind of anticlimactic and kind of, again, it just felt like I'm delivering this message of you can't be old physically again, but you can act young. So therefore enjoy your life. It feels like a promo for a goddamn retirement home, which is really. <laughs> or Metamucil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. And the thing too is it, like, it, it's Spielberg. Hmm, gee, was Spielberg known for doing any kind of like alien movies around that time? You couldn't have given us like Two Serve Man, Stevie Boy. You couldn't have like done that. You know what else it felt like? Okay, I will be a full, I will put myself on the line here very quickly and say, here's what it felt like to me. I've been asked with like contribute short stories to anthologies in the past and I accept the invitation and then I procrastinate. And then I notice the deadlines getting closer. And so I start combing through Like old trunk stories that I started writing and didn't finish, you know, at all, but they were just kind of half ideas or a story that I think I could work on and contribute to the anthology and get it there in time for the deadline. And it ends up being like a story that I'm not proud of, Uh, one that should have stayed in the trunk, but I got it in on the deadline, man. I'm in the book. So I've had that happen a couple of times. And then I just don't like to acknowledge that that story even exists. I'm not proud of it. I just put it out there because I had to. That's what it feels like when I watched Kick the Can. And I feel like Spielberg pulled that one out of his ass because he had to. And also filming of these other segments occurred after the John Landis segment incident. So we could take into account the morale issue. Probably. Yeah. So, yeah, it was tragic. And, but of course, not nearly as tragic as the first segment. And, you know, what really brought us together to even talk about this movie in the first place was A Quality of Mercy, starring Vic Morrow, who is actually the father of actress Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, that's what I found out today in my research. Nope. Yes. Yeah, of course, we've we've mentioned this a bit throughout the show. He's a, a dejected man who's pretty racist. He lost out on a promotion. Did you just say pretty racist? I know, I was pretty like, racist. I don't think we can say pretty. Like, he is capital R bolded italicized right. racist. <laughs> he comes right out the bat with anti-Semitism. Then he backs yeah. it up with some anti-Asian. And th- there's plenty of the N-word going on. Yes. There's some very high cringe moments happening in that bar scene when he's talking about losing out on his promotion. That's how where this all starts he's he's spilling it out to his buddies and then he leaves the bar and he's confronted uh because there's a table of uh, black men nearby and it looked like maybe an asian woman sitting at the table on his other side 
And so you have all these people that are just glaring at him. And one of the black men, is, like, they're finally like, hey, do you do you feel like not doing this? Yeah. And he just doubles down and triples down. And then, you know. Oh, he uses every racial slur you can kind of think of in the space of a few seconds, right? Well, plus, yeah. well, uh, I don't, you probably noticed this, right? That the black dude who comes over and uh, warns him about, you know, shutting his fucking mouth and yes. stopping the shit. That was X from the X-Files. I oh did God. notice that. Yes, I was so happy. Yes. <laughs> well done. Well done. I didn't notice that. I love, this is why I love you guys. <laughs> so he gets up, leaves the bar. And is immediately in Nazi Germany. Like, this is what I love about the Twilight Zone and stories like this, though. There's no explanation. He just leaves the fucking bar and he's in Nazi Germany. We do whatever, you know, and he automatically gets this because, of course, you see Nazi flags hanging on the the buildings and and whatnot. He's immediately encountered by SS officers who are picking apart his ID, his wallet. And they're like, what is this? And he's like, it's a credit card. And what the fuck is a credit card in 19, you know, 40, but immediately he's on the run because he, they think he is a Jewish person. So he's running away at this point. He's in this frantic mode. I don't even know what must be going through his mind. I mean, imagine walking outside a building and immediately being in another dimension uh, is what this is turning into. So he runs from, you know, the Nazis and he jumps off a, a ledge of a building. Yeah. Or falls off. Right. And then he wakes up and he's in Vietnam. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Like he, he's in the, cl- in the South first. Yes. He's in the South. In the bizarre the- from John Larroquette of all people. <laughs> right. That was my husband found that entertaining that it was John Larroquette. Uh, he was the sort of head racist clan guy that yeah chases him through the woods. The clan's chasing him and and uh, he jumps into some water. I'm, you know, fast forwarding. And then he comes up out of the water and he is in Vietnam. And then he's running from American soldiers because they think he's a member of the Viet Cong. And so he's running through the jungle to escape American attack. And I think it's at this point that we can kind of break off to talk about the incident. Well, before we like, because that was the thing too, because like, so just as I had gotten to that point in the movie, I mean, basically it's at the beginning of the film, you know, I've just turned it on. Yeah. You know, doing my research for this specific podcast and we get to the Vietnam bit. And first of all, by the way, that guy had a bullet hole in his arm, but Mark. He did. He did. He went into that water. He was dead from the word go from infection. (laughs) I don't care. But like, so we get to the Vietnam bit. And by the way, before that, like always fun to watch a Klansman burst into flames. I'll I'll, 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 (laughs) down harder in cash to watch that in any movie. More of that, please. Yes. Yeah. I did cheer. Yes. So we get to the Vietnam bit. We've got these soldiers. And they're all like, you know, goofed up on weed and like, you know, the, the, the hammiest performances I've seen in a long time. And I actually like caught myself laughing at the whole thing. And the split second late, and then like the giant ass snake comes through the water. I'm like, you know? oh, that and got me. me. And it hits me. Wait a minute. Why am I watching this film again? Oh, shit. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. about that. You yeah. Know, about to see something fucking horrible, you know? Yeah. And. So first of all, I will say that you can go onto YouTube. I don't know if you two did this, but I did. 
um, you can find this incident on YouTube very easily. It's it's on there. Um, it never made it into the final cut of the film. It's nowhere near because the this segment was very truncated. Yeah. Essentially, he gets out of Vietnam, ends up back where he was in Nazi Germany, stuck on a train on the way to a concentration camp. I think they just salvaged some footage. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. They they make movies out of order, right? They film scenes out of order, so yeah. they probably filmed all the Nazi Germany stuff at once, so they were able to, to put the intended ending in there. Um, but the Vietnam stuff was cut very short, and that's why it feels very truncated. Um, well, also, the the footage I didn't see it on YouTube, but I know that Kel and I both have seen it on. Uh, the TV series Cursed Films. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. They, for better or worse, they absolutely do show uh, the yeah. footage of this horrific thing. They do. And I I warn you only because although the footage is blurry, you can ver- you're watching someone, you're watching three people die. Two of them yeah. children, uh ages six and seven, who uh were illegally hired in the first place, but we'll get to that in a second. And so you can see this happen in the video that I saw on YouTube breaks it even breaks it down frame by frame from multiple angles. And it's, it's rough. Um, And it lives in your head. So if you're not into that kind of stuff, don't go and look at it. If you are fine, uh, you're morbidly curious like me, I've been there, done that. Um, But it's out there. So you can see this and what immediately comes to mind while watching it was this never should have happened in the first place. This, the way that this scene was filmed, actually let's rewind a little bit and talk about the fact that the scene never should have been there in the first place. It wasn't in the original script. So the studio was reviewing dailies or whatever and said his character, Vic Morrow's character was not nearly sympathetic enough. And so they came up with this idea that as he's fleeing American soldiers in Vietnam, that he rescues two orphaned Vietnamese kids. Which would have been interesting. Right. So that's his ability to find some sort of redemption in all this, Uh, which, you know, if if that had all worked out well, it probably would have played pretty well, um, especially for a movie from 1983. Um, And so he was picking these kids up and, and running across a river uh, to get them to safety while a helicopter with American soldiers was firing at them. And all these explosions were going off at the same time. What ultimately happened was the helicopter was flying way too low for these explosions to go off. The pyrotechnics melted and or destroyed the rear rotor of the helicopter And it brought the helicopter down right on top of Vic Morrow and the kids decapitating to Morrow and one of the kids and crushing the other kid. And it is horrific to even think about, let alone watch. And then watching the footage, even afterward, people stagehands, people from the crew going out to the water and seeing it and watching their reactions. It's, it's, it's tough to watch. It's even tough to talk about. Um, but I feel like we have to talk about it in some aspects so that people get how bad this was. Well, let me say this about that, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this will be a bit of a primrose path to lead you on. So I apologize for that in advance. But 
uh, I went to film school. This is going back 20 years now and uh, graduated. But first year, uh, one of the first films that they showed us was Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse. Have either of you seen it? No. So it's the making of Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Which I know was very, yeah. So one of the earliest scenes in this documentary, which is, of course, about Coppola completely fucking losing control of his entire set and also losing his mind. Yeah. Um, Early on, there was a bit where they showed that Martin Sheen, uh, who was the star of the movie, of course, at the time, very much an alcoholic and very self-destructive and very fucked up. And it was his birthday while they were filming. And the scene in the movie where Martin Sheen is in his tiny whiteies and he's drinking and he's doing Tai Chi in front of the mirror and then he punches the mirror and he bleeds. None of that was in the script. None of it was supposed to be in the movie. It was all fucking real. This man was having a nervous breakdown. Wow. Coppola's idea was, hey, give him some more booze and then turn the camera on and film it. Now, I mentioned this. The reason that they're showing us this to a certain degree is that the 70s, were full of behavior like this from filmmakers because it was such a cowboy era of filmmaking, of mm-hmm. making up the rules, breaking them as you go along. Well, it was new Hollywood. It, it was, was the new Hollywood movement, and yeah. Because of that, we got a lot of good stuff. We got a lot of great movies, a lot of great performances. And in the end, we can look back and say, sure, Kubrick, you know, terrorized Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining, but isn't it such a great film? Right. So here's this guy in my films class with me who watches this and thinks it's the greatest fucking thing that he's ever seen in his life. And shortly after that dropped out to make his movie and tried to get me to go with him. I said, bullshit. You don't know how to make a movie. Neither of us do. We haven't been past the first year. Yeah. He goes on. He makes his film. Years later, I catch up with him and he shows me, he shows me the footage that he got from this one scene that we had written together where film about a band and the drummer's going through some fucked up shit. And there was a scene where he's contemplating suicide in a garage. He's got a gun. And this guy shows me this footage. I'm thinking, wow, it's great performance. Very, very compelling. You definitely got something there. I mean, the mechanics are shit because you don't know what you're doing. But I got to say, that shows through. And he's got this look what I done mod on his face. He tells me that the way that he got that performance from this kid, and it is a kid, it's like 19, 20-year-old kid we're talking about, was to give him a bottle of vodka and have him drink the whole fucking thing. And then film it and give the kid a loaded gun. Oh and my God. That was that was because that was the lesson that he got first year from film school of oh, break all the rules, go crazy, be as dangerous as you want to get the things that you want. And I looked at him, I said, Are you fucking insane? Do you know the kind of tragedy you could have to carry with you for the rest of your motherfucking life, man? Because you did something like that. I right. mean, and what got me, and it, all by way of saying. Uh, you know, as we've been talking about this prior to the show, and as I watched this, and I thought to myself, why the fuck didn't they tell us about that instead? Why didn't they tell us about what happened on the Twilight Zone movie and teach that lesson to these children? Yes. Instead of uh, telling them uh, to go, uh, you know, happy assholing around a film set as though nothing matters and there are no consequences. You are absolutely right. And I feel like there is that sense in the artistic community always a constant divide right between doing things safely and doing things artistically heavy air quotes here right like you can't do both at the same time there is always that aspect even when you come down to choice of words and we say 
find other ways to express yourself that don't involve using these five words, right? <laughs> and people lose their fucking minds. Like, yeah. oh, but it's not the same if I can't say the N word. And it's like, fuck you. Yes, it is the same. You can do these things. It's There are people that just want to be reckless for the sense of being reckless for art. And what we see here, what happens with this is the King Daddy version of that, right? Because John Landis wanted these big explosions and he kept asking for more and more and more, right? And then- He kept saying fly and lower, yeah. Exactly. And the helicopter pilot was like, no, he was trying to get away when the pyrotechnics started going off. He was like, let's get out of here. This is too much. And he tries to fly away, but the damage was already done to the helicopter. But even going back to all that, we have to bring up the point that those children should not have been there in the first place. They were hired under the table illegally to circumvent labor laws that were put in place to keep kids off of movie sets in the middle of the night. They were kids were not allowed to be on movie sets at nighttime. So the one of the associate producers, one of Landis's lackeys, George Folsey Jr., I am naming and shaming him, was directly responsible for lying to safety officers and hiding those kids on the set to keep them from even being noticed because nobody knew who was in charge of any kind of safety measures. They didn't know that there were kids there. And then he juxtaposed that with their parents, their kids' parents. By the way, these kids were found because their parents knew some people who knew some people. They were just brought in, right? They, oh, I know a Vietnamese person who has a kid. Okay. It was like somebody who worked on the film in some very not important way, right? They were just kind of like a distant person, but they knew someone who knew someone. So they got a couple of young Vietnamese kids and they said, okay, we're going to like say that they're not here. We're going to hide them on the set and we're going to pay you in cash. You know who, you know, who paid them in cash, who authorized those payments, Steven Spielberg's producing partner, Frank Marshall. And While Steven Spielberg himself was shielded from any of the fallout of this, Frank Marshall fled the country to escape any accountability whatsoever for this. He wasn't even deposed and neither was Spielberg. And many people say to this day, how much did Spielberg know? Because he wasn't on the set that day, but he was a co-producer of this movie. So I have to think that he had to know that there were some kids being brought on set to film this scene. And he had to know. I I just, yeah. Because producer credits are a funny thing. And this was brought up a lot with the, uh, as you mentioned, the recent Alec Baldwin fiasco. You know, we Mm. watch movies and we see lists and lists and lists of produced by, producer, executive produced by, and two thirds of those people have no fucking idea what's going on with the movie. Right. They got that credit because it was in their contract to get that credit, or they got that credit because they threw some money at the production. I mean, it's kind of, it's very easy to point to them and say, you have a producer credit, so you're responsible. That's not necessarily how it goes. So I don't really know 
that Spielberg himself might have known. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'd like to think if he did, he learned a valuable fucking lesson. It's, that it's very possible that his main guy was doing some maneuvering behind the scenes that Spielberg was just detached from because he was working. I do not want to necessarily throw Spielberg under the bus, but it but definitely feels eh, there was some ass covering. But also going on. Landis. And Landis's ego is the size of a fucking whale. Even more that, than, yes. Than most and even today, when uh, Landis uh, interviewed, and he's asked about this, and he gets this big pumpkin fucking grin on his face, and he says, well, you know, I mean, I did my best work after that. Did you, motherfucker? I mean, like, right. pick up a camera after that. And that, that's really what I would love to talk about here is because Landis from the get-go had this desire to do all these things and multiple witnesses testified in his manslaughter trial uh, because yes, he and associate producer, George Folsey, the helicopter pilot, uh, special effects guy, all of them were put on trial for manslaughter uh, for this and they were all acquitted. Um, We'll get to that in a minute. The problem was, is that there was an absolute lack of communication between what George Landis wanted, what the safety officers knew was going on and what the helicopter pilot and everything thought was safe. Everybody had their own idea of what was safe. It almost feels in its own way. I don't know if this is a fair comparison. It reminds me a little bit of the Challenger explosion. Uh which also happened not long after it's all these people with these big egos and these big ambitions trying to do something. And they want to ignore the big elephant in the room. Right. Yeah. And so so it's like, well, you don't get to tell me that I don't get to use kids past a certain hour. I'm making art. Yes. yeah. Yeah. And so they brought these kids on and the parents were to- were not told that there would be explosives or helicopters anywhere nearby. Apparently they all testified. And here's something that really grinds my gears. Uh, the parents of the six-year-old, uh, Micah Lay, and then there was also Renee Chen. Those were the names of the two children. But the father of Micah testified he was a survivor of the Vietnam War. He had no idea what was going on when they were filming and they were on set. So once the explosion started going off in this Vietnam village, he had a panic attack himself. It brought back a lot of really bad memories. So just there's so much just infuriating things happening here, right? Um, and then to be there, of course, when those kids are killed very brutally and for what and for a remake of the fucking twilight zone even if the film had ended up being better than it was like ultimately this was a stunt movie for god's sake this wasn't like uh, that important a piece of cinema that it really required any of this. right that's a great segue into that so landis showed up at vic morrow's funeral not invited And he's jacked up on Coke or something to the point where he has to be held while he walks up to the pulpit to deliver this eulogy. No one asked for. Yeah. And one of the things he said was that Vic considered this the best role of his career. And he was so (laughs) thankful to Landis for giving it to him. Oh, I can top that. You ready? Yes. You said something about how Vic's work in television and stage and film made him immortal 
And, you know, hopefully there's some solace in that. And I know we've all lost people we love and, you know, yeah, maybe there's some sort of solace that you can look at them and hear them whenever you want, but you know, fuck you. I bet Jennifer Jason Lee would rather have had her dad. Yeah. I mean, after you watch, you gotta go and climb into the shower and run it five or six times because it's just the most uh, demented, unethical babble coming out of the face of this man when these people are lying dead. I mean, and later on when he was interviewed about it, all he could talk about was how it affected his career. Yes. He said nothing. He's never accepted any accountability whatsoever for any of this. He blamed it and the defense blamed it on the special effects team detonated something too early. That was their defense. They set off the fireball too soon. Bullshit. Yeah. And never mind the illegally hired children, but I'll get to that in a second, because during all these trials, there were there was so much drama, so much bizarre bullshit that happened, even by the prosecution. The prosecution in this case was an absolute shit show. And by the way, if you want to read about this in really great detail, please check out the book, Outrageous Conduct. The authors, Stephen Farber and Mark Green. Um, They speak to one of them in the Cursed Film episode. Yeah, they wrote sort of the definitive text on this. There have been a couple other books, but theirs is one that's referred to probably the most. So the charges were only for manslaughter. They never charged them on uh, labor laws or negligence or anything. So right off the bat, the prosecution is asking the jury to convict on manslaughter, which is a steep hill to climb, right? Especially when you're talking about the fact that all these parties miscommunicating, not being on the same page, whatever, they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt that this was manslaughter. Obviously, we have problems. We have so much negligence happening, right? But because all these signals are crossing together, we can't get a definitive picture. It's just static. As somebody who, again, went to film school and I've been on my share of uh, film sets, I can tell you that like any director who who makes a claim like that, that's the most cowardly cop out I've ever heard in my life. It, It begins and ends with the director on set. The director is the... General, the director is God. The director is responsible directly for anything that goes on on that set. And if there is miscommunication, that's not the fault of anyone but the director for not having a fucking handle on it. So for him to just shrug and be like, oh, the pyrotechnics went off too soon. Well, whose fucking fault is that, Johnny Boy? That was his show. At the end of the day, it came down to him. And he failed everybody, but he will never admit that. And here's the other stuff that he did on set. And this also comes from outrageous conduct. He used live ammunition because he wanted to put actual holes in the banana trees that were on the set. So Morrow was in the shot. He could have been shot to death here, but because a stuntman pulled him out of the frame Within three seconds, they started firing shotguns at the trees and Landis didn't want it any other way. So again, we're hearkening back to Alec Baldwin and again, not getting into the particulars of that. I'm just saying this whole thing about using live ammo on on the set of a movie and and horrible things that can happen. Again, here's a here's another point 
where Vic Morrow was, his life was in danger. And at very best, like Landis was proving that he was willing to put the lives of people in danger to get the vision that he wanted. Civil suits were filed. Criminal suits were filed. The criminal suit, and this took about a decade to shake down. So Landis and his crew were all acquitted of manslaughter, but civil suits were then filed. The families of both Vic Morrow and the children got settlements, pretty large ones. That's good, at least. Well, I'm yeah. brought Vic Morrow back. Uh, uh, yeah, um, um, it, exactly. Um, that it's just absolutely tragic. Apparently his, his career was at a bit of a standstill when he was offered this and this is what happens to him. I I feel like he was a man who was trying to get back into the groove of his career. And so he took this on and he was probably willing to do a lot of stuff that put his life in danger. And I just feel like that was probably all running through his head maybe in in that moment right before he died. And you could see that on the video, which is what makes it so haunting. Yeah. They could twist his arm to get him into this movie because he, he wanted nothing to do with it. This he felt it was beneath him. So really that's a, that's a, a really nasty bit of irony. And even like you said, this thing with the uh, live ammunition, you know, ricochets are absolutely a thing. Any one of those could have damaged him or killed him. And I was watching the movie pretty closely yesterday to prepare for this. You know what I didn't notice? Fucking holes in the banana trees. Cause who gives a shit? Right. Yeah. Right. But that's what happens when you're, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up by the way, because as I was reading about this in outrageous conduct and, and after already having seen the film, I was like, of course, I wouldn't recognize the holes in the banana trees. You're this is what a massive ego gets you, right? Yeah. So yeah. after John Landis gets off, essentially, his career went to shambles. Oh, wait, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> he went on to direct Trading Places, which was a pretty big comedy at the time with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And also um, America, yeah. Yeah. And he directs Michael Jackson's thriller video. These two things happened immediately after the event. At that time, this whole thing was being framed probably as this terrible accident. A lot of the details of this didn't come out until the trials. So, and that took many years, right? So Landis kept working. And of course, not just Landis, but everybody kept working on the Twilight Zone movie. So Spielberg, Dante, all this Spielberg and and Landis parted ways right after this incident, leaving actually Joe, uh, Joe Dante to supervise the editing of, oh, and George Miller also left in disgust. Dante stayed behind to supervise the editing on terror, or I'm sorry, nightmare at 20,000 feet. And I think he also kind of helped out with Spielberg stuff, but Spielberg and, and Landis were done with one another at that point. So the morale though, coming back onto the set and finishing this movie, I can't even imagine at this point that anybody could make this movie and, and feel. So I feel like that possibly affected the tenor of the remaining segments. Nobody was really given a fair shot because at that point you're working under a pretty heavy burden of knowledge of what happened and you know, the press and everything that's going to surround this. And if anybody goes and sees this, it's probably because they're morbidly curious 
and want to see if there's going to be a helicopter crash in the movie, which there is not. You will see nothing of this in the final cut of this movie. But a few years later, Eddie Murphy lobbies to try to get Landis hired to direct Coming to America. And they get him to come on. Landis and Murphy have a big falling out, a physical altercation. It doesn't go well. Uh, Landis comes in there with a big ego after Eddie Murphy apparently bent over backwards to get Paramount to hire him in the first place. They didn't want to, but they did. Landis gets the money that he wants and all this. Well, the two have a big fight. But then, of course, Murphy goes and makes Beverly Hills Cop 3. Well, hang on. John Landis. The funny thing about that, by the way, if I can interject, the Mm. thickest burn I've ever heard in my fucking life came from, and by the way, Coming to America, one of my all-time favorite comedies. Like, uh, same, I same. I can't base Landis as a director. I wish I could, but I can't. Because between that and Trading Places, two of my favorites. Oh, I love them. Yeah, I agree. After what happened between Landis and Murphy on the set of Coming to America, where they almost came to blows on more than one occasion, uh, Eddie Murphy was quoted as saying, John Landis has a better chance of working with Vic Morrow again than he has of ever working with me again. <laughs> oh, dude. Which is piss your pants laughing until you realize that, yes, as you just pointed out, in 1994, <laughs> they ended up doing Beverly Hills Cop 3 together. I am so glad that we we read the same research, it sounds like, because, yeah, I remember reading that and just I needed to close my laptop for a second and process that because... Wow. And this thing I've ever heard someone say about someone else in my fucking life. Actually, I read it years ago from the uh, Bronson Pinchot interview, but uh, yeah. It it, it goes to paint again, the ego on Landis. I mean, not that Murphy has a small ego, but both of these men are titans of ego, but Landis is on another level altogether, given that he came out of this, uh, whole thing unscathed essentially criminally speaking and that he now is like he still thinks he's this big time amazing director and apparently all he did on the set of coming to america was brag about how he got michael jackson to bow down to him instead of people being afraid of michael jackson (laughs) uh and so murphy was talking it was this was all in an interview i guess that murphy gave to playboy um a little bit later you know what occurs to me as we're sitting here talking about this? Like we mentioned, uh, there was a recent kind of reboot of The Twilight Zone. And, you know, we can argue the relative merits of that. But it seems to me that the strongest episode they could possibly have done would have been an episode about a director like John Landis, who had something this horrific happen because of his own incompetence and sailed yeah. away from it, just inhaling the farts of his own fucking ego and talking about how you know, the real tragedy here is what happened to his career when clearly nothing actually happened to his career. Have him go back in time via the Twilight Zone and experience this from the eyes of, you know, one of those children, for example. That would be a good Twilight Zone episode. I tune into that. Just to switch gears a little, little bit, um, there was an interview with the Jury Forewoman. And she said that she didn't think, and the rest of the jury agreed with her, that it would be fair to hold him criminally responsible for an accident that no one could have foreseen. (laughs) And when I tell you my eyes went black with rage like Willow in season six of Buffy. I believe it. Absolutely. (laughs) I just... This whole thing, right? You know what else happened during this too, apparently, was that 
there was an initial prosecutor on this that I guess stepped down and a new prosecutor took over who was equally inept and stupid. But the defense called the former prosecutor as a witness to discredit a witness that the prosecute the new prosecutor had. Ugh. That is the the circus that happened with this trial. I would absolutely love if my friends that are in podcasting and true crime that are well more versed in the law could articulate and dissect that because it to me reads again like not that the defendant that got off was hard to prove innocent it's that the prosecution was so inept because this should have been a lot more of a slam dunk if not to get them on the manslaughter charge to at least get them on the child labor violations and all of the other shit that went down that should not have went down. These guys got off. I would say the steepest penalty that was handed out from this was that the second unit director that I think was in charge at the moment that that happened or whatever, he got his name removed from the credits and replaced with Alan Smithy. That was the harshest penalty, the Alan Smithy penalty. Of course, anybody who sees that knows that someone either removed their name from the credits or had it removed due to reasons. That was the the steepest penalty in all this. And meanwhile, we have two dead children and a dead man because um, one man, and I will just say this, one man's ego. Yeah. And the fact that he went on to do pretty big work, he didn't fall out of favor until around when they were trying to make the Blues Brothers sequel. And he realized he couldn't get the financing. And this was right around the time that the fallout from the trials had finally settled in. And I'm sure the rumor mill was at work before that as well with Spielberg and everybody like, okay, Landis is off his rocker but he hasn't done much since that blues brothers thing he's done some small work but his star did eventually fade but not as quickly as it should have there's an important lesson to be taken from that i think and that is that you know if you want to kill a character actor like vic morrow fine you want to whack a couple of little kids on set by being irresponsible fine but by god if you make a shitty sequel to blues brothers or beverly hills cop You are on America and the world's shit list for the rest of your unnatural life, John. Oh my God, Josh, this makes me want to cry because that's the truest thing out of this whole episode. And I will just say this too, is I think that even if this scene had been responsibly filmed and no one died, Landis's entry into the Twilight Zone movie would have still probably been the weakest of the lot. Weaker than Kickstarter? I don't think weaker than kick. Uh, I don't know. I, I, okay. I think it'll put, I'll put it on par, but I'll just say it. Everything about it was just so on the nose. It was a color by numbers version of poetic justice that I was, I was watching it. I'm like, even when they're in the Vietnam scenes, they're playing Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, like of course they are. It, it, it's just so cliche, right? So 
So we have Vic Morrow, two innocent children dying in the service of a mediocre production. Making <laughs> in front scene, of their parents, by the way. Yes, yeah, and yeah. making a scene that would not have saved it from being overshadowed by the other entries. And according to Roger Ebert's review, which I loved reading, by the way, and I think he nailed it, loosely quoting here, it appears that Steven Spielberg, who assembled the order of the films, sensed his and Landis's were the weaker of the four and so assembled them by ascending levels of excitement. So yeah, um, that feels about right. And I think Spielberg was smart enough to know that Spielberg might have an ego of his own, but it's nothing according, you know, nothing like Landis's where it's reckless, right? The movie released to mixed critical reception currently has a 58% aggregate on Rotten Tomatoes. Hi, wow. That's generous, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I, w- I honestly would probably give it a four out of 10 myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those four points are going to Dante and Miller. Um, commercially, it did okay. It made about $30 million on a $10 million budget. But as so, you, much of that was morbid curiosity. I'm betting most of it, you know. Yeah, it's definitely not like, oh, coming home from the theater, oh, go see the Twilight Zone movie. It's awesome. Nobody was doing that. Um, but it was successful enough to help greenlight a 1980s Twilight Zone for TV reboot on CBS. Yes. So that's probably the only good thing that came out of this, other than I think an ego check on John Landis. And I wish he was in jail. I really, I really do. He should have seen jail time for this, but here's, here's something that really threw me for a loop too. When all this happened, John Landis was 30 years old. That sounds about right. I think about the control of all these people and all these elements and this catastrophe happening under somebody who is barely out of youth themselves. I mean, just wow. When I think about what I was doing at 30, yeah, I was pretty reckless at that age too, but oh my God. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, doesn't, doesn't that really take us right back to the penultimate uh, segment, which is if you put that much godlike power into the hands of someone who is essentially an ill tempered child, then you will get nothing but catastrophe and horror as a result of that. Wait, are you saying the lesson was in it the whole time? Like, <laughs> this was the friend, it was the friends we made along the way. Is this the lesson that we were? I'm saying that there's, a, like, an intentional or not, and it probably was not, uh, there's definitely a commentary on itself. And as you said earlier, you know, the fact that so much of it was shot after this tragedy. I mean, there's a smell of mildew around the edges of every part of this film that comes from just that having been soaked into it. Even even if it's not obvious on screen, it's just there. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And as a bit of a primer to this, I I first started rewatching this movie when my recollection of the incident was a bit vague. So I knew about the helicopter crash. I knew about like, the John Landis thing and, you know, how his name has been tarnished by it. I, I knew about the illegal child labor and all that, but what I had forgotten when I started rewatching this movie was that Vic Morrow was one of the people killed. So I was watching this whole segment going like, wow, this guy's an asshole. I was having no sympathy for him whatsoever. I got through his whole segment and I was like, 
this was kind of weird. Like I knew that the helicopter crash happened, but I saw no evidence of it. I was waiting for it in the film. And then I started doing my research and re refreshing myself on the whole thing. And then it said Vic Morrow was one of the people killed in the helicopter incident. And it completely changed everything that I viewed from that point on when you go back and it's kind of unfortunate, right? Cause then you go back and rewatch it and then you're watching him on the screen. You're like, he got decapitated while making this movie that stuck with me and it's still with me. And John Landis did not pay nearly enough of a price for his role in it. It makes watching a lot of the movies he made kind of hard because he did make some really good movies. And then you think, wow, this is what happens when ego gets a hold of your whole process. Yeah, it's, it's almost sad to a certain degree that the three of us can sit here and all of us agree that, yeah, of course, Trading Places was a brilliant, brilliant film. And of course, Coming to America was a fantastic film. And if justice had been served, neither of those films would have been made. But mentally, I don't know about you, I can't draw that straight line between those two things, probably because I grew up watching, you know, those two comedies in the same way that if I sit down to watch Rosemary's Baby, which I love absolutely every time. Yeah. Of course, I know what happened with Rowan Polanski, but my brain won't draw that line between those two things. It just it it, it should. Of course, it should from an ethical perspective. Uh, it, it must, but it can't. That's that's me with uh, Chinatown for yeah, talking about Polanski. Yeah. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Chinatown is and probably always will be in my top 10. And uh, I guess, honestly, Polanski could absolutely be its own episode. But I I yeah. do feel like, oh, my God, if if the Mansons hadn't done what they did, would he have done what he did? I don't know. I don't want to try to overly justify my love for things. But it's like this terrible person made this great thing. And that's always, I guess, when we're talking about movies or any art we kind of have to put that in. And one of my previous episodes here with Chris, we talked about uh, Caravaggio, which is one of the greatest painters of all time. He he was amazing, but he was also a very terrible person. So it's interesting to s- sort of revere his work, but at the same time, talk about, well, he murdered a guy. So <laughs> people talk about separating the artist from the art, but I don't think that's really the answer either. Because if you look at trading places or coming to America, you know, Landis's ego is all over those films. Uh, if, if he weren't the director that he were, you couldn't really make the argument that some other director could step in and have made the films as good. And it's the same with Polanski or, you know, any uh, anyone who has that sort of darkness in their soul, uh, they'll bring it to their artwork and we will enjoy it, even if we uh, loudly disapprove of the darkness itself. Yeah. Oh, beautifully said. That's a great note to end on, actually. <laughs> uh uh, Kelly, do you have anything you want to add? Because, man. Oh, I mean, this... sure. Yeah. Let's not end it on the really good note. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I. Well, I Before we sign off, Kelly, I, I feel like you're uh, you, you do a podcast about horror, don't you? I feel like you should probably bring that up. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's the reason I bring it up. I just I feel like. We could definitely make the case that I don't think anyone could have done Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown the way Polanski could have, but I don't know. I feel like John Landis would be a lot easier to replace. That's true. Mm. I think you're right. I think you're right. Let's kill him and see what happens. 
Uh, yes, I am. I am in favor. All in favor. All our hands are raised. I have a feeling. Um, my hands have been raised, and I just want anyone who's listening in who's part of law enforcement to know that that was entirely a joke. We mean nothing against Landis. He's he's neat. We're not going to kill him at all. Yeah, I mean, he, all, was, uh, a, he was a he was he was acquitted in the court of law, yeah. albeit uh, not without faults. Yeah. Uh, you know, because justice is not a perfect uh, beast, is she? Pray to God, guys, because all we need is like for Landis to turn up dead tomorrow. And- <laughs> On our goddamn doorbell. I mean, right. I don't I don't have time for a criminal trial in my yeah. life right now. <laughs> he, he made it work. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn. Listen, none of us can afford to fly to California to kill anybody. So <laughs> whatever happens, we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I have absolutely loved having you on my show after you've graciously had me on your show slash shows. Cause Kelly, please tell me Kelly or tell the audience rather, what is it you do here? Cause you have a couple shows you have yes. I already mentioned the one, but please mention the other. Uh, my friends, Julia, Rachel, and I do a book podcast called what you should read. We've had Allison on a bunch of times to talk about multiple things, including her book, the other Mrs. Miller, which we all loved. She is our outrage correspondent and Steve Martin of the pod. If you enjoyed Josh and me talking, we do press play and scream, which is about horror movies and both are a blast. Absolutely. Check us out. We're very fun. They, I, I, she's understating it. It's a blast. I've had honestly so much fun every time I'm on a show with you and you and Josh at the same time, I absolutely love it. And thank you so much for giving me entry into your shows and outreach correspondent. I, it's a, it's a privilege. It is an honor. And, uh, I look forward to, you know, creeping onto your shows again soon and having you back on mine. I love the little, yeah, the little family that we have created in the pod world is, it just means the world to me. So um, please, please go and check out Press Play and Scream and what you should read if you are into great podcasts and you can absolutely send me feedback via email at ddarknesstime at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at ddarknesstime. Also, I am going to be back uh, with another big season soon. So this is the season of the dark arts minus Harry Potter, which is what I've been (laughs) loosely calling it. So this one covers the movies and I'll be back with an episode about dance and mass hysteria with Chris. Um, But thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in and listening. I hope you come back for the next one. It's big things in store at all times at Ding Dong Darkness Time. Peace out. (laughs) (laughs) Peace out. All right. Our lines are hard. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. 
In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs. <laughs>